Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things from their life that they would like to see preserved in a time capsule. They pick four things they cherish and one they regret, and would like to be rid of by burying it in the ground. Telling me their five things and lots of other things in this episode is the actor and writer Tim Bentink, one of the most famous voices on British radio, because for the last 30 years he's played David Archer in the BBC Radio 4 series The Archers. But that's by no means all he's done. He's written a number of books, including his own autobiography, and is a regular contributor to the Mail on Sunday. Tim has been an actor since 1978, having trained at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. Since then, he's appeared a number of times in the West End, worked extensively on television in such shows as The Royal Bodyguard, 2012, The Thick of It, Doctors, Broken News, Grange Hill, By the Sword Divided, EastEnders and Silent Witness. On film, he's worked with the likes of Roger Moore, Kevin Kline and Trevor Nunn in films such as Enigma, The Year of the Comet, Twelfth Night and Vanity Fair. He's also one of the country's top voice artists, having revoiced Gerard Depardieu on film, played the English and Scottish armies in Mel Gibson's Braveheart, recorded dozens of video games, including Star Wars, The Hobbit, Warhammer and James Bond, in which he was actually Bond himself, and lots of audio dramas, including Doctor Who, Torchwood, Blake 7 and Space 1999. For many years, he was the voice of Mind the Gap on the London Underground. I was delighted to be able to record this episode during one of the small windows over the past year when people could actually meet up. More of those to come soon, I hope. In the meantime, here's Tim Bentink and his time capsule. And his loo, which is useful. Have fun. So then I noticed up there in the loo... Yeah. Um, poster for Pirates of the Penzance at the Drury Lane. Yeah. A long time ago. Were you in that? <laughs> I was the there. Pirate King. Wow! That's what, that's one of the, one of the things that is going in my uh, time capsule. Fantastic. It's 1982. Tim, I think we may have met while that was on and not known about it because um, I remember yeah. I bumped into... Tim Curry. It? No, Chris Langham. Oh, right. In the street. Yes. And uh, he said, Mike, it's the last night, Paris Penzance, last night, come and see it. And I went, um, well, I said, yeah, you've got to come, I'll get your ticket. So I went to see it, and he, after he said, come to the party. So we went to a Tex-Mex in Covent Garden. Do you remember this? If and, it was Chris's last night, I was playing the Pirate King. That's right, yeah. Because then Oliver Tobias took over from me, um, so you would have seen me doing that. But that is, I mean, talk about a seminal moment, the opening line of my autobiography is 
You're on, said the stage manager. What do you mean? Tim Curry's got food poisoning. You're playing the Pirate King. I'm the second understudy. Where's Chris? Chris Langham. He's off too. This is a wind-up. It's because I'm five minutes late for the half, isn't it? No, really? Yes, seriously. They're waiting for you in wardrobe. You've got 20 minutes. Oh, my God. Cheer up, Tim. It's not often you get to play the lead in a West End musical. And I was. I was second understudy, and I would had never done it. Never rehearsed it. I had one music call with the music director around the piano. But I'd been in the movie with Kevin Klein before. So take after take after take. I knew the words. And I've got the record, because I thought I would never be on again. So I got them to record it. And so I've got the cassette recording of me singing flat. (laughs) Really quite, quite stonkingly flat. So is this your first item? It's one of them. I mean, basically, what it is, it's 1982, is what it is. You could have put 1982 in. Because <laughs> in 1982, we bought this house, which we're still in, all these 30, 37 years later, where I've lived my life and where both my children have been brought up. And so it's the fifth member of our family, and that started in 1982. In 1982, I got David Archer in The Archers, same year. Wow. And also went from being a hoofer at the back of a musical, being a pirate and, you know, just in the background. And then Tim got ill and then I did it once badly. And then they put Chris on the next night and Chris did it even worse by his own admission. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, Tim, you do it. So I carried on doing it. And the first time I went on, they hadn't got the clothes for me. So I was in these sort of puss in boot boots. My hat fell off, you know, nothing, it was nothing to say. And then Tim got really ill and I took over the part. And for, so for six weeks... Coming up to Christmas, absolutely packed theatre Royal Drury Lane, slipped the programme. I mean, every night it was, you know, unfortunately, you know, the part of the Pirate King will be played by Timothy Bundy. Groan, you know, <laughs> every understudy's nightmare is like, you go on to groans. Yeah. But in the audience one day were the people who were producing By the Sword Divided, which do you remember that? Yes, I do. 20-part BBC epic about the English Civil War. And one of the directors was in, and they asked me to come in and audition to play Tom Lacey, who was the Cavalier hero of that. So from that, then I suddenly went, for, then when I was playing Leeds, and then I was, you know, a bit of a TV star and went on to do sitcoms and, you know, yeah. lead parts in, in all sorts. I suddenly became, a lead, you know, a leading man. And mm. it's just been a slow, gradual kind of downhill since <laughs> <laughs> really... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, well, no, I mean, I've always earned a decent living by yeah. like we all do ducking and diving, and suddenly it gets good, you know. And I get TV series, and then you think, well, who? That's it. I can put my feet up now. I'm going to be a name, and then that's you know, like I did this thing with David Jason called the the Royal Bodyguard. Yeah, big series. Yeah, me and uh, Jeffrey Whitehead and David Jason names above the title. I thought yeah. that's it. Three series, you know, with options for through two more series and mm. increase, and you know, worldwide all that. And I thought that's it. Done it. And it was a turkey. I mean, it was appalling. And even when it went out, I remember watching it, and, what, and there was this new thing called Twitter. And there was this Twitter feed that was uh, a tweet along. And I was watching it being destroyed in front of my eyes and going, what we were doing, because I thought to myself, I thought, well, I'm sure it's very popular. It's not my kind of comedy. Uh, and it turned out it wasn't anybody's kind of comedy either. Mm. Lots of reasons. Um I'm not one of those people who go, oh, darling, the only thing I can do is act. Mm-hmm. I'm really not one of those. And I'm not the kind of the thespian who has to be on stage and smell the grease paint and smell, and smell mm-hmm. the crowd. And I think it's fun and it's, you know, and I'm quite good at it. But it's not, uh, it's not. There is a difference between those dyed-in-the-wool theatre thespians, you know, yes. and me. I'm much more, you know, pay me the money, put me in front of the microphone and let me make people laugh and, and we'll all have fun, you know. It's, it's do you cool. think that's... Why you do David Archer so well? And I'm going to say that oh, unreservedly. Very sweet of you. Unreservedly. <laughs> well, it, it would not have survived as a character had it not been so completely believable. Oh, Everybody man. absolutely believes that that's who you are. Oh, well, thank you very much indeed. So, I, I mean, but it may be the fact that you are not a lovey. Well, you know. I got better at it. That's the thing. I mean, I look at back at what I did when I was younger, when I did by the sword divided, and I look back at the VHSs of that, and I come out of theatre school. Bristol bit theatre school and it was theatre it's mm. how to fill a West End stage you know with your presence and your hugeness and nobody told me how to do film acting nobody told me that the camera doesn't lie nobody told me that you don't do pretending and I was you know I look at it now and I go it's awful I'm so guilty of you know putting on a face and you know frowning and doing acting and things and, and, and it, it took me the thing that actually really 
changed me. I was got a long part in um, Grange Hill, mm. playing this very depressed dad whose wife had died of AIDS, and he thought that she was having an affair. And it's all about the daughter, because it was the daughter's story, because it was Grange Hill. It was all about her. She comes back to her dad, who's full of it. She was having an affair. He's all gone mad. And I finally worked out, and somebody, you know, had a really good director, saying, don't do anything, man. You know, just don't do anything. Don't do anything. I went, oh. Mm. And then the other lesson I learned was listening. <laughs> And that's what I do with David. It's just, there's a line from a, anybody who's at Bristol Albert Theatre School will tell you, Rudy Shelley is the person who taught them how to act. And one of his great adages was, acting is the art of reacting. And that's what I just stick to, really, mm. is you just listen and then don't do anything and just react to that. Also, if you react to, if you have a thought, you react to the thought. Everything's responsive, you know, it's always in, yeah. it's in response to everything. And so by doing less and less and less, I've kind of got, I better think I've got better, better, I got better at it. I mean, you know, you're never, ever, ever satisfied. But there are things that I go, when I watch it on screen, I go, yeah, it was all right. Then. Mm. I still, you know, we're all guilty of overdoing right. it. But it's often the experience of actors that they discover slowly that all the stuff they thought they knew, yeah. they need to get rid of. You need to get rid of. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I still really enjoy doing um, computer game acting you know where you yeah. where it's sight reading you're in there standing in front of a microphone for you know two or three hours and these lines come up and each one you've got to think of that's an individual line in response to something else and you give it something so you impart some and i love that and i love improv you know and i do a lot of adr where you do group sessions where you stand up in front of a microphone and have to improvise an entire scene that's going on in the background and we use i use that as, as improvisation exercises and then i've been studying improv and everything and really what I've come to the conclusion is that it's the creativity that I love and I don't like the repetition. So the last time I did a play, I was up in Edinburgh doing uh, this play called Brexit and I was the Prime Minister. I had not been on stage for eight years. Oh. Suddenly I'm playing the lead in a play and I'm on stage all the time and never off playing the Prime Minister, driving this play, scaring myself to, <laughs> you know, to bits about that. Um so when we were rehearsing it, and I'd come back in the evening and, and Judy said to me, she said, I haven't seen you so happy, Tim, for years. And I was creating this character. It was a new play, and I was creating it. Mm. And every time I went to rehearsals, you'd create something. Oh, you yeah, know, think of something, do that. And then you came out, and then we did the first night. And went, wow, this is great. This is really good. And, you know, people love it. And, you know, people come in doing that kind of furrowed brow acting afterwards going that was really good you know because they didn't expect it and then i had to do it for four weeks up in edinburgh and after about the first week i went right I've done it i'm bored and then i had to on my own away from home you know and also the other thing was it was on lunchtime so you couldn't go out and get pissed at night and stay up late and you know have a goodie and then kind of get over the hangover during the day and then do the show in the evening no you had to be on stage virtually in the morning yeah so i, I thought no you know what <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore. No. I don't need at the age of 66 to be frightened. No, but you say you like other things in life. So, I mean, it, you've just shown me the sort of scullery that you've built. <laughs> yeah. I think those sort of things are very healthy for an actor. Yeah. I've had people say to me that, that when they started acting, they'd had no life experience and therefore they were sort of guessing at everything. Mm. And I think that certainly with David Archer, it's, it, people don't realise how difficult it is to do that almost non-conversation. Yeah. And that's the hardest sort of acting to do, I think. I've always loved doing that and always have loved always trying to make it more and more real. I mean, that's the thing, you know, because it's what it should be. It should be conversational. Mm. And it should make people think you just that's what he just said rather than that's what he just read, you know. Yes. So I'm so aware of that. And of the millions of people listening at home who genuinely follow these people devotedly. They do. They do. And we bear a heavy responsibility. I, I, you know, I really found out when, well, I should, I should say for the purpose of this, that my autobiography came out in 2017, which is called mm. Being David Archer and Other Unusual Ways of Earning a Living, which is what we're talking about, <laughs> is that I do, you know, I have got other skills and there are other things that I love doing. Yes. Um, and I do love building and I love, you know, doing computers. I love programming. There's all sorts of stuff. And it's all it's all in the book because yeah. it is the tale of a jobbing actor. It's not full of theatrical stories about, you know, what went wrong when the furniture collapsed and, you mm. know, kind of actory tales. It's not. It's kind of a 
And then I met. And then I met, yeah, exactly, name-dropping. It's the tale of one step forward and two steps back. It's the tale of a jobbing actor. It's about how to, how to survive yes. this ridiculous profession. And, you know, it's still go- there's no end to that book. You know, it's still going on. It doesn't change. Which, for young actors, I think would be a really interesting read. It's a good book for a young actor to read because you, you know, I mean... It, that must happen with you as well. That you, now parents they say, "Would you come and talk to my son or my daughter?" And because they want to be an actor, yes. and I hope and probably what you do the same is to give them all the reasons why they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Because the awful truth is that you can be the most beautiful, good-looking person. You can be the most talented actor. You can have everything going for you with a good agent, but unless you walk in that door for that particular part, where you they go, "Oh yeah, you're right." And you get that part that gives you a bit of a, a name. Once you've got that name, then you work. You're guaranteed to work for the rest of your life, unless you screw it up. Yeah. But if you don't, when this is what I am, I'm just below the cusp of being a name. You, know? <laughs> you see, that's, oh, but no. that's maybe something to do with the way we regard ourselves. See, I would never regard myself as even being famous. No. In any way. No. I mean, the only thing that I'm famous for is for being David Archer. And the thing is that the famous person is David Archer. It's yes. not Tim Bentinck. No. These people, most you know, ninety nine percent of people get to go. So, who plays David Archer? And they wouldn't know at all. Now, the point I was going to say was that in writing this book, then what happens is you then get put on this on this circuit of of literary festivals yes. and you know one man shows, you know, in the evening with David Archer, and you do all that other thing, and it's great. You know, they they it packs them out. The point I was trying to make was that when you then sit there signing the book for people and they queue up and there they all they pay their money and they put the thing in front of you. And they then tell you their reason for listening to the archers and the fact, and they, you know, there are certain kind of little tropes that come up over and over again. Like I've been listening to this since I was a baby or since it started in the case of older women, women particularly and men, but mostly women. Mm. And uh, that 15 minutes every day is my time where everybody knows that they're not allowed to ring me. That's one that comes up over and over yeah. again. Th- those 15 minutes, everyone knows you cannot call me or come and call on me because that's my private time with the archers. Another one is um, I listen to it in the bath. So I always have this image of naked women. record, <laughs> <laughs> And they, they come out each time. Now, it would be easy for me, you know, for someone to go, yeah, I've heard that, you know, what's your name? And sign it. And they go, yeah. and then they go off and go, what an ass that David Archer is. What an ass that person. It would ruin it for them. It would ruin it for them. And you realise that there's that old thing of noblesse oblige that comes from the aristocracy, which I don't have. But you do have, as an actor, you have a responsibility that if somebody tells you that, that's their experience. Mm. The fact that somebody else has had that experience doesn't make a jot of difference. And so it's absolutely beholden to us to go, how wonderful. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you for telling me that. Then, you know, that's your thing. And now we've got a bit of a thing. And that makes their day, you know. They bought your book. You know, they come all this way and they proffer this bit of information. And I think it's so important. And that's why there is this dif- differentiation in between actors of, and I won't say it for the purposes of the broadcast, but um, I put it in the book, which is a game that um, Robert Bathurst introduced me to, yeah. which is, um, uh, we'll say, uh, arse or angel. <laughs> in fact, it's a harsher word. Yes, I'm sure it is. Um, or lovely. And the, the game is that somebody proffers up the name of an actor and you have to instantly say either, hmm, or lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and the profession divides itself between those people, the people who are appalling on set, who shout at the runner, who are horrible to the tea boy, who diss anybody who hasn't got a part as big as theirs, who think of themselves as being hugely, hugely successful and famous and arsy to everybody else, and the rest yes. who aren't, you know? And I, I really shit on the on, on the arseholes. I, I can't understand why you have to be... There are very gig. few of them, though, aren't there? I hope so. Mm. I mean, you know, they are there, and they get away with it because they're so famous. You know? Yes, sadly. Um, but there it is. You know, No matter what you're doing, you have a responsibility to people. Because otherwise, you know, you think of it, we don't have a job unless there's an audience. No. <laughs> you don't come home and sort of do acting on your own. You know, you don't come home and sort of, like an artist. Don't you? I do. do In your own room. Yeah. To your mirror. That's what I'm best. (laughs) (laughs) My dinner time is entirely dictated to by the archers. My wife cooks the dinner. And uh, her archers time is while she's cooking the dinner. Oh, gosh. And then we eat at 20 past seven. Oh, boy. 
I mean, well, you're not hearing me at the moment. That's the awful thing about it. Is you know, he dips in and out of storylines, and if you're not in it, you're not in it. No, and you're not getting paid. That's the other thing because there's yeah. no retainer. It's funny how they avoid things like uh, I suppose because they can't plan in advance. Well, you do. You've got to because other things. I mean, what they could do is if it's you know if it's a one-off, then you go up and you do you record a, a topical insert, so mm. something you've recorded five weeks before, which is about to go out. You then go up and re-record that scene mm. to reflect that somebody died, or so you know, a football result, or rugby, or something like that. Yeah. If we'd won the World Cup, and we recorded the you know losing and winning, because <laughs> they knew that was coming up, and they knew that there would be a reaction to that, so we recorded it twice. But if it's a death of somebody, I mean, like you know, God forbid, when when the Queen dies, somebody will go up and we will devote an entire episode to it, and we'll go mm. up there on the last minute and they'll rewrite it that day. Yes. Um, for it to go out. Well, we'll see you, but uh, nineteen eighty two. Very good. For anybody who wasn't there, bad luck. Yes, <laughs> bad luck. Yes, so House, David Archer and Pirates of Penzance, which changed my career. So that's my first one. Yeah. So the second one, I mean, not in any specific order, is um, you can take pictures of this to accompany oh, yeah. it on your website. This mm. is a this is a large um, toy blue VW Beetle uh, that is smashed with a hammer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this reflects the fact that my father... After the Second World War, when he came back to impoverished Britain, simply because he was an eccentric, decided to buy a German car. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was this, you know, the, the, the Kiefer. Um, and there was, you could buy these new things called a Volkswagen Beetle. And he used to drive around and people would stop and think it was a spaceship. I mean, you'd never seen anything like it before. Literally, he'd stop at uh, traffic lights and crowds would gather around him, looking at it, going, staring at it, going, what is it? Because it looked like a spacecraft. Mm. And he kind of loved that because he was a great attention seeker. <laughs> my father is probably where I got it from. Um, <laughs> and one day he was driving probably too fast and probably with too much alcohol. And somebody pulled out in front of him out of a side turning and so he turned into the side turning and he rolled the car and so my first experience of a car was you know not it was pristine for a bit and then it was always sort of a bit beaten up and then another time he was coming back late night from uh, and I lived in a, in a village called Potnen near Berkhamsted and there's a place between there and Little Gadsden called the Mad Mile which is a straight which is a mile long exactly a mile long and Pa used to try and see how fast he could do it <laughs> in this beetle, which caused then he does 60 top. Wow, yeah. you know. And he knew that there was this cutoff sign, which said T-junction. And if he slammed on the anchors at the cutoff sign, he would just stop before the T-junction. And he was, you know, and they did. They all drove, they all drove stocious in those days. And he was coming back from London, um, I mean, drunk a lot. And it was misty and he missed the sign completely. And he went across this T-junction at about 60 and smashed it up again. So then it came back with this had a sunshine roof, and the sunshine roof is all ripped off and put on it. Anyway, in the morning, apparently I aged about, I don't know, eight or nine or something, came outside and found my precious car, which I adored, even though it was a bit battered. You know, this is now, it was completely, as he smashed up. And I burst into tears and screamed at my father, what have you done to Folksy? Because that was its name, it's called Folksy. And he obviously sort of so upset not only about being such an idiot but having upset his son who loved the car gave me this beautiful pristine lovely blue car which within 24 hours i'd taken the hammer to, <laughs> <laughs> to say that is my experience of a car and it mortified he said to me you know years later when he said you mortified me when you smashed that car up it really made me think about you know about drinking and driving and the idiot i am i could have killed myself and you know and even left you know. so he said i never drank again after that i never drank when before driving after that as a result of you smashing that car up he saw in your actions a reflection of his own fallibility. Uh, he, he he was so he, he was so upset that that my reaction to that was that the only car that I could actually sort of contemplate playing with was one that was smashed up yeah. was was damaging, you know, to a child. I think, mm. and also just his own mortality. He thought, you know, I rather than just upsetting my son him to smash up a VW Beetle, I could be dead and then he'd be an orphan, you know, and all of that. So yeah. it just, it's one of those sanitary little things. And he mm. said to me later, and he's, when we were adults, told me that that meant a lot too. So I've always kept this car. Mm. Like all these things, they kind of, they have ramifications. Yes. So Volkswagen was always a thing. And indeed, I've still got a Volkswagen outside. 
And I wrote this a book called Colin the Campervan, which is all about the VW Campervan, because years ago we bought this blue and white campervan. Um, and we used to go on on holidays with it, in, with the with the kids, all you know, all around Britain. And also, when I was doing the arches, and I was a broke actor, and I was trying to save on hotel bills because they pay your expenses. And to save, I used to go up in the camper van and park across from Pebble Mill <laughs> in the car park of a football field and sleep in it. Um, and it became, you know, we'd had it for and years keep and years. The Fifty quid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> keep the 50 quid, exactly. Very um, sensible. And then and, and it was terrible because it was left-hand drive and the heating didn't work and it, it was freezing in the winter. I mean, you can imagine, you know. And then I went and had fitted a propane-powered central heating system, <laughs> which is unbelievably dangerous <laughs> in the back. Um, and even just used to have those little freestanding propane heaters, you know, just wobbling around in the back. Can you imagine? I mean, the oh, thing would fall over, the whole thing would, would blow up. Anyway, I wrote a story about this sort of magic camper van for the boys when they were small, to be just to read to them at, at night. And it's a very short story. And then years and years and years later, I came across it on the computer. Um, and I thought, oh, um, and there was this new thing called Kindle had started and you could upload a story and publish it on Amazon for for the Kindle mm. for free, for nothing. So you could just do it. So I put it up there and charged, you know, two quid or something like that. And um, sales were really, really good. I could you know, put the word about it and people then it, 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 it's a nice story. It's a sweet story. And then this publisher came along and saw it and then said, do you want to publish it? So I said, yes. Yeah. So we then published it. So it's, in it. it's now a book. How brilliant. I love the fact that you've still got that toy. Yeah. <laughs> all this time later. <laughs> because most people would remember a thing like that, but to keep it with you means that it really does mean something to you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what you've asked me to do this, and, you know, I am very good at that because Judy will tell you I'm a terrible hoarder. I don't, you know, I really find it very difficult to throw things away. And I like having objects that remind me of the stories, you know, of, of the past. So did you have trouble narrowing these down? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just literally, you know, I could go on for a week. <laughs> you want five time capsules. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've limited me down, thank goodness. We're going to interrupt him for a minute to listen to some vital adverts. Well, they're vital to me. We'll be back in a sec. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back after what I hope were some adverts, rather than an embarrassing silence. OK, let's get back to Tim Bentick and find out what else he would like to put in his very eclectic time capsule. So the next one is this, which is a USB stick. Because upstairs, every single computer I've ever had had taken the hard drive out and kept it. And so they're stacked up. So every single thing that I've ever done on any computer, I've kept. So this represents my life in computers. Um, And also, well, actually, that goes along with this, which is a Scion. Ah, the Scion. The Scion 3A. And that's what made me a lot of money in the early days of computing. Because, so this was before the internet. So this was late 80s, early 90s. For those listeners who don't know, a Scion, P-S-I-O-N, uh, was a sort of forerunner, really, of, a, of an iPhone in a way. It's a, uh, it's a computer. It's a personal computer, but a, a bit bigger. If you imagine a large phablet, 
you know, phone tablet type thing, which folds out in the kind of clam way. And it does everything really that a computer does. So it's got a word processor, it's got contact details, it's got database, and it's got, and you, and you can program it. Mm. Um, and it had this programming language called OPL, which was actually really very high end and very easy to do. And it came with the instruction manual. And then the other book that came with was a programming manual. And being a curious person and person who likes pressing buttons, I looked at the programming manual and it had a conversion calculator thing it just very simply converted from centimeters to feet and yards and then I started playing with that and augmenting it and augmenting it and augmenting it and eventually it ended up with this thing which was called conversion calculator pro and it converted everything so what you could then do you could put in three inches plus 12 furlongs it would then convert that into meters and it would convert that into meters it would then add up those two and then it would reflect itself and it would tell you how many millimeters how many centimeters how many meters how many kilometers there were in the addition of those two things so you could find yourself adding up all kinds of different diverse things in imperial side that would then calculate the basket in the middle and then it would reflect itself in all the different metric sides on the other side so that engine i could use for any conversion thing and nobody else was doing that and so you put it out on this new thing called the internet and I had a thing called an email address, which was 11055.1022 at compuserve.com. Um, <laughs> and do you remember, do you know a guy called Richard Omini? No. Um, he's a writer. And he and I were the first people, well, he was the first person I knew who was also on the internet. The other person was Stephen Fry. If I found Stephen because of that, because I knew that he had this thing called an email address. That was great fun. And Douglas Adams. And Douglas Adams, Yeah. So what I did was I then put this program up on the bulletin board for people who had scions and they would download it and they would run it and it had a nag screen that would say, if you like this program, you know, pay 10 quid. But it wouldn't stop you from doing anything. You could do everything, but it, it was annoying. Mm-hmm. And my thing was, if you use it a lot, then you'll be annoyed a lot. And also you think, well, I'm using it a lot. I might as well give 10 quid. And it did. And I made something like £15,000 out of it, you know, wow. in six months, and which in those <laughs> days was a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. The end of this story, like a friend of mine who was doing the same thing, who's now at the head of a software company and is immensely rich, that's what I should be doing as well. <laughs> you, well anyway, so there you are. So honourable but poor, that's me. We'll put that in. We'll put your little USB yes. in there to represent To represent compute, computery things along with, along with the Scion. Yeah. I did the did, first advert for Scion. Did you? Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, maybe but it was you, just when it was a thing yeah. like that. They hardly did anything. But uh, Yeah. Well, maybe it was you that persuaded me to go and Maybe. Buy it. I was uh, me and I can't remember the other actor. I mean, I had a lovely day doing it. He was the person who was wise enough to do that. I never played the wise person in adverts. Uh, <laughs> I always played the idiot. <laughs> Uh, to the point where once uh, I played a man who didn't realise that you could get all the vitamin C you needed from one tablet, and I, as a result, was the man who instead ate ten lemons. Oh, all right. And uh, I, I took all the shine off my teeth while doing that advert. As in oh, Germany, that was good fun. Hell. That was the thing about those days, because I used to do a lot of beer adverts, and you couldn't drink false beer. You had to drink real beer. Yeah. In fact, there was... I do remember with... Um, Angus. Angus Dayton was, we, he and I did a Guinness advert together and I was the Guinness and he was the doctor in the pub issuing prescriptions for the Guinness. And every single time with the Guinness, I drink it like that. And like you do with Guinness, because it puts a white mark on the top of your head, I go like that and suck it in. I say, no, you can't do that. You can't do that with Guinness. What? You can't suck the white stuff off your lip. Okay. Sorry. Take two. Oh. No, no, you don't. I was like, take 15. And I they had to pour me into the taxi at the end of the day. I was hammered. I mean, I probably got through 10 pints doing that. Yeah, easily. Did you look like the sort of bloke you'd see down the pub? No. I mean, I look at them, I've got them all there. You can go to my website. Mm-hmm. And there you will see uh, all the adverts that I've ever done, because I track them down, all apart from one, which is for opal fruit. So I was a scoutmaster. Kid going, mouth dry, skip, because I go, oh, I tried to do yodeling. Oh, oh. Mouth dry, skip. Yeah, try one of these opal fruits. Oh, <laughs> you remember them? Yeah, man. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> the only ones I remember are the ones that were terrible. Oh, Terry's Logger Bar is the one you can, which I'm pretty embarrassed about. I've just discovered a logger, the Terry's Chocolate Bar. Got hunks and chunks of Terry's taste are better, bar by far, and I'm dressed up as a lumberjack. <laughs> and I had, I had long hair from doing, well, this all divided. 
And it looked quite cool. It was sort of, you know, bl- blonde. It was, it was highlighted, I have to admit. But it, was blonde. Oh, yeah. it had my earring, and, you know, it looks like that. So, yeah, what happened was that they then decided to change the pack. So the pack shot was different. So the whole, they had to reshoot the advert. And at that time, I cut my hair. And they liked the fact they got on there. So they somebody made me a wig. And they take, made me a wig <laughs> taken from a still that had been taken on set, whereas heavily backlit. So it was blonde. Instead of being kind of, you know, kind of quite coolly sort of sandy looking, it was this blonde wig. So there was this bloke with a black moustache and a blonde <laughs> wig looking like the campest thing you've ever seen in your life. Again, check it out, folks. It's online. Uh, brilliant. Terry Tim Benching in the Logger Bar advert is very funny. I'm going to look at it when I get home. <laughs> the embarrassing things we've done. So we've got, I was going to put my wedding ring in just because of Jude. Um, which because Judy, we know we've been married for, well, we've been together for 45 years mm-hmm. and my life would not be the same without her. I wouldn't have my family. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm, I am, I, I owe her yeah, almost everything. And, and she is, she is the world to me. So this, this ring represents her. And that was a, an ex, one of those weird things that you have, one has in one's life. Those little tiny, tiny little moments that change everything. And I was at University of East Anglia and I saw a sign saying people wanted to show Americans around London in the summer holiday. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a good holiday job to do. Oh, I'd be good at that, I think. I'll go along for that interview. And then I forgot. And I was back in my room and I went, oh, God, I've missed that interview. Damn, that was an hour ago. Oh, oh well, never mind. And then this little tiny, tiny thought went, well, it's only just down the path there. It's just around the corner. Go, go you never know. They might still be looking. And they were. And I got the job. And that's where I met Jude. And if I hadn't had that tiny little thought, my whole life, I mean, you know, this happens to all of us all the time. Well, whole life would have been different if it hadn't been for that particular thing. But the the tininess of that thought, and I remember kind of going, shall I, you know, oh, all right. Just that little thing. And everything changes. Mm. So, and, and, you know, without which I w- we wouldn't be in this house i wouldn't have these children wouldn't have this way i probably wouldn't have this job you know everything everything would have been, yeah. would have been who would you be who would i be it's incredible isn't sliding it? doors you know what would this alternative reality be like isn't it in a way that's what this time capsule is it's it's yeah. sort of finding those things in life that where your life became what it is yeah as a result of them yeah absolutely mm. um and the thing that i would want to forget and she's behind you there that's my mum who took an overdose when I was 13. Oh, Lord. And again, that would have, you know, everything would have been different if it hadn't been for that. So the thing I I would would want to change, you know, the thing that, uh, um, the thing that, that, that you don't want, the thing that you want to put away, the thing you don't want to think yeah. about is, is, is that. Because that, you know, I mean, I've got two sisters, one who's six years old and one who's 12 years old, and we talk about it occasionally. And I don't know why, but my pa decided that it wouldn't be a good idea to have a funeral. Not because he's religious, he was a complete atheist, but I don't know why. Um, so literally one minute I had a mother, and the next minute this big black car came along and there was thumping going on and this you know and the car big old hearse drove away and that was it that was it suddenly I never had a, didn't have a mother again and me and my two sisters you know we talked to each other and go we're seriously screwed up because of that I mean as you can imagine you know in our different ways we've managed to survive it but that that screws you up that you know that could have come out in all sorts of horrible ways and it's it's suppressed you know there's you know, there are moments where i'll just burst into tears because of something like tim you know tim minchin australian yes. tim minchin because i was born in tasmania and so i'm i so and i went back there from to, to, to the land of my birth and you know and i was so emotional because that was mum you know um and she was there and the photographs of me as a baby with my mother and he sings this song about um Drinking wine in the sun. Drinking wine in the sun at Christmas. Yeah, I, I think shit, Christmas is a bit shit, really. But this, and I was listening to this, and I just suddenly—I mean, just poured tears because it's all in there, you know. It's mm. all it's, it's, and the mm. same thing with both with my, with my lovely sisters. But losing someone like that at the age of thirteen, yeah, that's really tough. Yeah, and and the thing is that you kind of peep, you know you peep, it's that's so you know this was nineteen sixty seven and it was you know yeah well and I, and I'd just been sent to Harrow that was the awful thing I'd been there for a term I was away from home for a term having to cope with that and I came back and had Christmas and then she then she killed herself in January and then I had to go back to boarding school for five years and had to cope with 
you know, not only being away from home, but not having her there. And nobody ever, ever did sympathy or kindness or gave you a hug or anything. It was all, get on with it, you know, slip up a lip, chap, go on, you know, mm. play rug up and all of that. Well, I wonder what kind of a... <laughs> Wonder what kind of a person I would be if you know if she if she'd lived. Mm. I don't know. Was she very affectionate? Though? Oh God, yeah. And she's the absolute. I mean, I've got one recording of her, and it's of me showing her how our new reel-to-reel tape recorder works. Yeah, there's the geek already, uh, Mister Techno Lover, yeah. going. No, no, mummy, look at it. You know, you do this. You have to press this button, and it's, and the microphone's got a magic ear. And Mum's pissed because you know one of the reasons why she took her own life was because she wouldn't have done if she hadn't had, you know, been drinking. Because we've got her diaries, we've got the diaries that led up to it. And you can see a woman going into clinical depression. You can read it, you can see it. Mm. And if she'd lived, you know, she'd been around these days and with Prozac and things like that, maybe it would have been different. But nobody cared. No, so she had a drink instead. Yeah, so she had a drink instead. And then when she was pissed, then she would get maudlin. And Mm. then she and she'd done it twice before, Pa said that she'd tried, you know, sort of a a shout of despair. And uh, yeah. But we, but there's there we are and she's going oh a magic ear and she's Yorkshire mm. so because half of me I'm literally I'm half toff and half you know real old you know working class Yorkshire <laughs> Sheffield steel working man made good and she's from Sheffield but she'd been sent to a school down south so um so she was quite posh from the school but you could she got this Yorkshire rhythm and both my aunties were absolutely broad Yorkshire they were both like Alan Bennett <laughs> the camp, you know Yorkshire mm. and they go Tim me. Little Timmy, hello. So you can hear it in her voice, and it's so nice that we've got these. We've got two recordings of her, and she goes, "Oh, magic here!" And then she goes off on this one. Do you know that at this very moment, Richard Burton is playing so and so, so and so at such and such a theatre? And then she goes off and she quotes great tracks of Shakespeare, pissed. And I'm listening to her going, "That's really good." You were an actress, Monkey. And then we would do these voices. We'd do Pete and Dud. All right, Pete. Oh, yeah. Dad. And she'd be being Dud. And we'd do these voices together. And I went, that's where it all came from. Doing silly voices with my mum. And then my pa was quite good at accents as well. And he used to wake me up in the morning being Irish, you know, and he's like, top of the worry there, Chief. And we'd be Irish all day. What did your dad do? He was a BBC man for a while. He was, he was a talks producer at the BBC with Jack Duanio. And then he went to J. Walter Thompson and made TV commercials. He was a producer. Do you remember Nimble Adverts? Mm. He was that was par completely everything about them, you know, with the balloons. Okay. And I was on the balloon crew with him down in Spain and in Switzerland. And there's, that's oh, where like my a love bird of, in the sky. That's yeah, that's where my love of being on a film set was. You know, the adventure of being on film sets making commercials. You know, mm. he was still a film set. I loved that. Mm. And then he was way ahead of the game with about environmentalism, and he saw all this happening all this you know he said it's not save the planet that's a terrible arrogance it's save humanity the planet will do very well by itself once we're all gone thank you very much indeed you know yeah. <laughs> it's an arrogance to say that we're in charge of the planet no we're in charge of it being able to to be a habitation for mankind and that's what we're after and he stood up in trafalgar square and made and i've got the recording of it and made a 40 minute speech it, it saying telling people to put your green hats on and and, and, and stop overproducing really? because this will kill us this will when be was that? this was 1969 no yeah way ahead of his time and then he got he inherited this title out of left field suddenly became the earl of portland and he didn't have to but he proved it because he wanted to have a political platform to be able to stand up in the Houses of Parliament and tell people that unless you change your ways, this is the doom of mankind. And his his theory, the line that he said, which always, always struck me, was that up until now, um, you look at Darwin and you look at the, you know, at evolution, that we have always put man's best interest first for our benefit. And now we can't do that anymore. If we put man's best interest, that is to the detriment of the planet. And what we've got to do now is to put the planet's best interest before man's best interest. Well, that's all very well if you're, you know, if you're a tree hugger or a sandal-wearing hippie bearded lefty. But from the point of view of the money men, that don't work. You know, you can't say to the man in the city, cut back on your profits for the benefit of other people, because that kind of altruism doesn't exist in the city and that's what runs the country and so it ain't going to happen so we're we're doing and i mean it it is extraordinary what he said there was this um program that a computer program that was commissioned by um the group of rome 
by MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in 1969 to look at the consumption that mankind got through and the the birth rate of mankind and the projection of how long it would take for us to kill ourselves. And they put it at 60 years. <laughs> this is in 1969. It was that bad. It was so bad. And there's Parr talking about it, standing up in Trafalgar Square mm. in 1969, and, you know, he was way ahead of his time. He should be a hero of the... He uh, should be. So what I'm doing, literally, what I'm doing now, in fact, just after you go, I'm going to... I'm placing it. I'm going to send it off to Greta Thunberg and, uh, and, see what, and say to her, look, you know, good on you. Yeah. But what, one of the things that Pa said was, I looked to the young, and this was... He was in his 50s probably then. I looked to the young because I think there's a new movement coming from young people. And... He, it was true what he saw, but it hasn't manifested itself because of the power of money. Mm. You know? I can imagine how difficult it was for your father to stand up in Parliament. It, well, it was. It, it was. I mean, he did, and it, that, again, that's there. He, you know, he. It took him two years to prove this title because a, a distant cousin had died, and and we, you know, we theoretically he could have become the Earl of Portland, but it wouldn't have happened unless he made the effort to prove it. Mm. But he did in order to have a political platform because, you know, he wasn't ever going to be an MP and he just, you know, it wasn't his style really, but he wanted to be somewhere just now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there it is. It's on, on YouTube. Um, the Earl of Portland's maiden speech. And of course, you know, how many people were in the house? About 10, <laughs> but uh, it's in Hansard. In Hansard. That's the important you know. thing. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask this question because I don't I don't know the answer. So is that an hereditary Earl? Yeah, yeah. You are the Earl of Portland. I am the Earl of Portland, yeah. There yeah. we are, you yeah. see. <laughs> but this is what I'm doing with Google at the moment, is to say, can you please change it that when you Google me now, it goes, Timothy Bentink, Earl of Portland. And I've been on and no. on and on and saying, I don't use the title. I've never made any money out of it. The only time I'd ever use it would be for charitable organisations, if that would help people. And they say, I mean, I've literally actually had the reply of lectures today go it's not it, you, you read about how it does it's not them it's an algorithm that de- that decides who you are wow. and you can say to your heart's content i'm not but the it's that it's the bloody program but because they're <laughs> americans they go well what better thing can there possibly be than to be a lord you are a lord my god you know and they go he's a lord every single time you do that you go that's probably another you know small voiceover job that i've lost because they go he's a bloody you know pon- poncy tough <laughs> <laughs> well, he's can't fall for going to harrow i know well of course i mean you know did i have any choice in the matter no. that's the whole thing isn't no, it? We don't i didn't ask i didn't things. ask to go to bloody boarding school and not have a mother mate you know i, mean, I, so, know. I don't mean you i mean i think most people to keep it quiet because there are just so many people go oh no david archer it's a he's an earl yeah no luckily you know luckily my mates take the piss yeah and it's all right you know and i will go turn up to work and if somebody's found out they'll just go and say i've got to doff doff my cap to you my lord and here's the red carpet (laughs) i've heard a rumor about it but i've never asked you before as as long as they keep taking the piss yeah and as long as i can continue to to be you know quite good at the job Yeah, I should. And, and I, I'm I, so, I, I, I'm well, so listen. Like, can I throw? I throw in the one achievement in my life. I've got, can, I've got yeah, to throw yeah, in the well. one achievement because no, I did get an MBE um, two years ago. Did you? I've got an MBE for services to drama. <laughs> That's something where somebody's gone well done, you know. And yeah. that I'll take that. But the idea of actually just because of an accident of birth having this title. I just don't, I don't rate no. it. I don't rate it, you know. And the other thing is, I just, I think I don't deserve it. I'm just doing my job. And this, I wouldn't have got it if it hadn't been for David Archer. You know, I haven't done enough work to be, have an MBE for services to drama. I was glad that it wasn't services to radio. You know, I was quite chuffed with that. Yeah. Um, but I, heaven's sake, you know, and it was a great no, day. A it was a great get. day. Well, who was, was the nice. Prime Minister who gave you that then? Theresa May? It was under... May, yeah, but it wasn't. Oh, the, do you think got, she's an Archer's fan? Well, I, I, I mean, they don't start it. It's not the Prime Minister who no. starts it. It can be anybody, and I don't know. Wow, I, to, you know, and if anyone is listening to this, and you did it, tell me because I want to say thank you. Might have been the Queen. <laughs> uh, well, it might have been Camilla, because I got a, a card from Camilla on the day, and I spoke to Barry Farrament, who's in the Archers, and he got an MB in the same one because 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 of his good work doing music for disabled kids. And I said, did you get a card from Camilla? And he went, no. I went, oh. 
So it might have been. And when I got the thing, and Charles gave it to me, and he said, this is my, my wife would be absolutely thrilled to know that you're here today. And um, so we had a little pleasantry, and I made him laugh and thing. And I went, oh, I might very, it might very well be. <laughs> so anyway, I think we should ask them both round. Yeah, get around. So, yeah, get around. <laughs> so I, no, I would. I'd throw that in and into my little time capsule thing as as once in my life somebody said, "Well done," and I got a prize. And so that's a chuff making. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Congratulations <laughs> from me. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Tim. Been a delight. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Tim Bentink. If you haven't done already, please subscribe to this podcast on Acast or your favourite podcast provider, and we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for more information about what we're up to on My Time Capsule. The theme tune that you can hear playing in the background, which was written by Pass the Peas Music, is available to download at Spotify. You just search My Time Capsule theme tune. Yeah, I imagine you could have guessed that. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. And that's it for another episode. (laughs) They fly by, don't they? Thank you for listening, and thanks to Tim, not the 12th Earl of Portland Bentink, for being my guest. Of course, he's not the only one with noble blood, as I discovered the other day. Uh, yeah, I was informed by a somewhat red-faced bus driver that I was a right royal cock-up. <laughs> oh, my parents kept that quiet. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.